The Fitness Reborn podcast is a companion piece to Renaissance Fitness personal training. This podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only. It does not in any way constitute as medical advice. If you have a medical concern, please seek out your provider. Hello and welcome. This is the Fitness Reborn podcast. My name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, where we put movement ahead of workouts. And uh, my guest today is Andrea Nicholson. She's based in Colorado, and she is a board-certified holistic nutritionist specializing in gut and metabolic health. And like I was telling her before we started um, going live here, we started recording, um, anyone I can bring on that can kind of help me and anyone, I think, clarify a very kind of uh, complicated and nebulous subject matter as nutrition, because I think just about anyone who kind of lives his life will agree it's the hardest thing to try to master and try to get a hold of. You know, the strength training, that's easy, but this is hard. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so Andrea, thanks for coming on. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Good, good, good. So like I said, um, your uh, expertise interests me a great deal because I could learn a lot more and still trying to work it out as best as I possibly can. So, but before we get into all of that here, just kind of give people listening a kind of a you know, con contextual background in which to uh, know that what know, understand what we're talking about here. So I know stuff about you based on what I've read on the profile on your website and stuff like that. But you know, probably not a lot. Anyone else listening to may not know very much about you. So let's start from the very beginning. What brought us here talking to them today? Yeah, so I have just always been interested in health. I didn't always walk the walk, though, which I think a lot of people can relate to that. You know, we know what we should be doing and we know what we want to be doing, but we don't necessarily stick with it. And that was definitely my story. Always been interested. My birth family all has very significant heart disease, which is what really piqued my interest to begin with, because they all died really young. And I didn't necessarily want to follow in that path. But like I said, I didn't follow the life until I was in my mid-20s when I got some pretty scary news that I already had plaques forming in my arteries. I already had advanced arterial age. And if I continued down that same path, the same path of my birth family, then I would have been over halfway through my life already because the women in my family didn't live to even 50 years old. And so in my mid-20s, that meant I was already halfway through my life if I even made it as long as they did. And so that's what really woke me up and got me to, uh, you know, to walk the walk and to really start making differences in my health. So that was the start of my journey. I've had a long, uh, varied journey since then, but that was really the catalyst that got me started. Gotcha, gotcha. So in your, in your previous life, um, I saw that you were a forensic scientist, right? I was. Yeah, that was my full-time career at the time when I got that scary diagnosis. And, you know, I loved that career, but I didn't love the fact that it was 24-7. It was very negative and it was, you know, you're always dealing with people in their worst. And I just didn't love that. So I, I ended up wanting to transition out of that career and, you know, I turned to my passion. I've always been interested in the health. And by that point in my life, I was more on the right path. I was eating well. I was exercising every day. I was doing all the things. And yet I still didn't feel as good as I thought I should or as good as I could. I was still dealing with persistent digestive issues and chronic headaches. And 
I had a lot of muscle soreness that wasn't associated with workouts. Even if I took a week off, I was just stiff and sore all the time. And there was just things that didn't make any sense to me based on the life I was living. So it, I turned to my passion. I ended up going back to school, leaving that career and really dove in deep, mostly for myself to understand what was going on with my body. Why was I still dealing with all of these things despite eating a very clean diet, working out every day? You know, I didn't smoke. I didn't do things that like I knew were terrible for me. I thought I was doing all the right things and yet it wasn't working. So I really wanted to know why that was and what I was missing. And so that's what took me down the path to ultimately starting this business. So for yourself then, so you were, you, you got diagnosed pretty early on for very big warning sign that you were going down a path that was going to end up putting you in an early grave, like your, like your birth family. So and you started doing what you said were all the right things. So I know a lot of us, including myself, we probably are out here thinking we're doing all the right things too, and probably not seeing quite the results or not feeling like we feel we should be feeling. Um, and so if for yourself then, what were, what, okay, let's start here. What were the wrong things you were doing and how did you correct that? You know, I think it, it is a really unique prospect for everyone. I think what the exact right answers are is different for everyone. And that was the first mistake I was making as I was following kind of common advice. I was following, you know, government recommendations for what all of us should be eating, you know, the food pyramid, all of those kinds of things. I was following the standard advice. And I actually don't agree with the standard advice for really anybody as it's laid out, but I also don't agree that there's one prescription for all of us. I don't agree that there's one perfect diet for everyone. And that's what I ultimately ended up finding on my journey is not only were the recommendations that I was following not serving my health, they were actually taking me down the disease path of insulin resistance and digestive dysfunctions that will contribute to all chronic diseases that I don't think anybody should follow any one plan. There is no one perfect plan. We really have to hone in on what's perfect for you because that's unique. And what's perfect for you in this moment, what your goals are, how active you are, what you do, your overall lifestyle really has to be taken into account when we decide what that perfect plan is. And what works today might not be the perfect plan in five years or 10 years as you change, as your life changes. We need to be able to pivot and change and continue to iterate that so that it always aligns with you in the moment. So what did you do that was kind of counter to what, like, say, the government guidelines are? Because, you know, I agree. Um, I agree the government guidelines are, are, they're antiquated and very not useful. I mean, they give you like a broad outline of things that you could be doing. I think in that way, they're probably useful. They give you a starting place. But, right, the, uh, the FDA approved guidelines about what the food, food pyramid, pyramid is it's not terribly helpful and it's, um, it, like you said, it might even be harmful if you follow it too strictly. So what did you do that was against that? Well, for me, one of the first things that I realized when I really took a good hard look at what I was eating following that standard advice and not just the government guidelines, but lots of common advice that we hear from books and other resources, 
is I was eating basically all carbohydrates. And when you look at even like the food pyramid that I think most people have looked at or the my plate or whatever their current version is, they want you to eat the vast majority of whole grains, fruits and vegetables. Well, those are all carbohydrates. And then they want minimal proteins and healthy fats. But when you really study nutrition, what you find out is there are no essential carbohydrates. We don't have to consume any carbohydrates to function. Your body can make all the carbohydrates it needs. You have to consume healthy fats and adequate proteins because we can't make those. We have to consume them. So it's almost the exact opposite of what we've been told you know, we really should prioritize all these whole grains and all these fruits and vegetables, which it's not that those are in and of themselves bad. They're not directly causing disease. But when we prioritize those, we end up eating 200, 300 grams of carbohydrates a day, which is driving high blood sugars. It's it, in my case, it completely destroyed my gut. You would think all of that amazing fiber would be feeding the good microbes and would be doing all these amazing things for my gut. I had almost no bacteria in my gut. I'd completely depleted everything when I was eating a whole food vegetarian diet. So I was eating nothing but plants and yet it destroyed my gut. I had no bacteria. I had pathogens present. I had no good bacteria. My digestive dysfunction was a mess. I wasn't digesting proteins or fats well because I wasn't eating them. I lost the ability to make those enzymes and all of those things that I needed to be able to eat those foods. So I couldn't actually take in or absorb the essential nutrients that I really needed. And with that diet, I wasn't consuming those things anyway. So I just had a whole host of problems following that advice. And when I flipped that on its head and actually prioritized proteins and healthy fats, and reduced my overall carbohydrate intake. I'm not saying we have to go to zero by any means. For some people, if you're really trying to reverse serious disease, you might need to go to zero at least for a while. There's plenty of people out there who do the full carnivore diet and do really well. It doesn't work for everyone. It's not the optimal diet for everyone, but I don't think anybody needs 300 grams of carbohydrates either. So you said that, and I, I just heard something I did not hear before, at least I can't remember before hearing before, you said that we produce our own carbohydrates. I, I'm, uh, I'm intrigued by that. How exactly does your body produce its own carbohydrates? We can actually convert other byproducts into sugar. So we can convert some proteins into sugar. We can convert components of fatty acids into sugar. And we can convert larger polysaccharides, larger sugar molecules from starches and those kinds of things we can convert those into simple sugars as well. So we can actually break down lots and lots of different substrates into the necessary carbohydrates that our body needs when they need them. So we have the capacity to not overload our system with carbohydrates because we can just produce them as we need them. Oh, interesting. Like I said, I mean, things I'd never heard before, things I'd never even uh, thought of before. Um, okay, so your body can produce its own carbohydrates from consuming proteins and fats and things like that. So the idea that you need carbohydrates to go into the gym or maybe a surplus of carbohydrates going to the gym to power your workouts, 
that's just all complete myth? There's a couple of different schools of thought when it comes to fitness and the amount of carbohydrates that you need. There are a lot of athletes who do carb load or really kind of play with that lever to make sure mm -hmm. that they have that adequate, you know, available energy because sugar is the fastest burning fuel. We burn through it really quickly, which is why people end up carb loading because you need a fair amount to continue burning sugar or you burn through it really quickly. But there's also a whole population of athletes that are now training in a fat adapted state so that they're actually functioning their entire workouts on ketones and on burning fatty acids, which burn really long. They take a lot longer to burn through. We purposely store fat for that reason so that we always have energy on board. And when you're in a really good fat adapted state, you don't need to eat during your workouts. So for people who are doing like marathons or, you know, really long endurance activities, they don't necessarily need gels and all these sugar products while training. They can train fasted because they're burning their body fat the entire time. And so there's an adaptation process to get into that phase. And obviously genetic variations make this easier for some people and harder for other people. And it can take a lot longer for some people to get into this mode, but there is a mechanism for training in a fat adapted state that therefore doesn't require all of that added intake of sugar. Okay. So, I mean, for like ultra marathon runners, ultra endurance athletes, they, I mean, just by looking at them, they tend to be pretty slender. So they don't seem like they have very much body fat that they can really sacrifice to keep them powering on. Um, but even for, even in that, in that condition, it still holds true that they have adapted to using their fat storage as a way of fueling their activity. They have. And then they pair that with what they do eat when they are eating and they make sure that they're taking in adequate fuels so that they're replenishing any stores that they are burning when they're doing those long endurance workouts. So they may consume higher amounts of fat and protein than say the average person would, which is also true of really any athlete. They're consuming way more overall food whether it's fat and protein focused or carbohydrate focused, you know, an endurance athlete of any kind is consuming a whole lot more than your average person is mm -hmm. just by the very nature of how much energy they're burning. But yeah, so they really pair what they're eating when they're eating to make sure that they've restored anything that they need to restore after those really long workouts. Gotcha. Gotcha. That actually makes a lot of sense too, because I think, um, yeah, we kind of knew that too, because, you know, we know that, you know, ultra marathon athletes, they just, they do eat a lot. Um, I remember hearing a story about one guy, he was running through the Appalachian mountains or something like that. Just, you know, just, just cause, and I think he was ingesting something like 7,000 calories a day and he was rail thin yeah. because you can believe he was burning through every bit of that just to be able to keep himself going. Yeah. But, yeah. But okay. So aside from the, you know, the ultra marathon freaks that we know are out there and do this routinely and they're extremely very well adapted creatures. I mean, to run 50 miles a day, come on, that, that, that is something, that's something really special, but most of us aren't out there doing that. Right. So for the common person, you know, people like me who are not running 50 miles a day, um, how do you say that we're getting, you know, Maybe not something as scary as what you were having, but something that's disturbing us, like constant gut issues, digestive issues, um, you know, 
just making us feel very uncomfortable and maybe even bloated through most of the day. So how would we address that? What would we do to kind of um, correct that? You know, I'm a big fan of functional testing to identify for sure what's going on, because a lot of those symptoms, you know, whether you're constipated or you have diarrhea or bloating or gas or your stomach just doesn't ever feel good or you get really full really fast or you get really hungry really fast and like, you know, whatever that is, if it just doesn't feel right, there a lot of those problems can be caused by multiple things, multiple imbalances or multiple sources. So I'm a big fan of testing so that we know for sure. And then we can remedy what's exactly going on for you. So if you're like I was where I didn't have enough adequate bacteria, that means I can't properly break down my food. I can't properly absorb those nutrients because I didn't break them down, which means I'm just eliminating the foods that I'm taking in without getting that nutrition actually out of the food. So if I don't have that absorption of the nutrients, then I don't have the building blocks. So I can't properly detoxify. I can't build muscle. I can't build organ tissue. I can't do all of the things that my body needs to be able to do if I don't have the raw materials to build those things. So then your muscle you know, quality suffers, your bone health suffers, your immune system suffers, your hormones suffer, like just all the way around. If you don't have the building blocks, everything suffers. So that was what it was true for me is I didn't have enough bacteria and then I didn't have the enzymes and all the things that I needed to be able to properly digest. For someone else, they may have the exact same symptom presentation that I did, but maybe they actually have a parasite or they have a pathogen present that's either stealing nutrients from them to keep that pathogen alive or is just causing all of these immune reactions and all of those things. So I do think it's a it's really important to actually identify for sure what's going on because you can't necessarily tell just by symptoms. So I'm a big fan of things like testing that tell you, but I'm also a big fan of really having a conversation about what you're really dealing with. So often we get used to feeling like crap. We forget what that even feels like. We forget how good we actually could feel because every day feels not so great. We actually lose sight of that. So I think we really have to take a good hard look at what's really happening. What symptoms are you really dealing with? Can you think back to a time when, oh yeah, I, I guess I haven't always dealt with this. Even if it is something you feel like you've always dealt with, if it really isn't optimal, then we can probably fix that. So we have to kind of pair objective data from things like testing with the subjective data. Cause the goal is to get you feeling as amazing as possible, having all the energy that you want to have, being able to do all the things you want to be able to do without, you know, undesired symptoms. So we, we really need to pair the two together so that we can get you to that state. So what do you mean by functional testing? By functional testing, I mean, this is testing that's similar, but different to what say your doctor might order. So you you go into your doctor, they order blood panel, you know, standard blood work. They then compare those blood markers to reference ranges. Those reference ranges are actually taken from the averages of everyone else that's had that blood test done. But the vast majority of people are having blood work done because they don't feel great. So that means the average population is already sick or already not optimal. And that's what you're being compared against. 
I don't know about you, but I don't want to be compared to the average of the population because the average <laughs> is getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And statistically, you can actually see that when you look at what reference ranges were 20 years ago, they're not what they are today because they keep shifting them to match the average of the population, which is getting sicker. So that's the first thing. In functional testing, we're actually looking at where your values are compared to optimal. This isn't based on averages. This is based on where people actually feel their best. They don't have any symptoms. They don't have any disease progression. They don't have all of these problems. So we're, we're bringing you back into optimal where we're looking at your values versus optimal. The second distinction between kind of conventional testing and functional testing is just the type of testing that's offered. One of my favorite kinds of tests, especially for digestive health, is a stool test. And sure, conventional medicine can do a stool test, but they're really dealing with people who are in an acute sick state. You know, they have chronic diarrhea after traveling somewhere, or they have this, you know, immediate situation going on. That's the kind of testing that your conventional doctor is doing. They're looking for a particular parasite or particular infection that's causing this acute issue. But if you have kind of a chronic issue that's been lasting for several months or years, their tests aren't really looking for those answers. And so we would run a stool test and we're looking for things that like your resident bacteria, do you have adequate populations of the good bacteria that we want you to have so that you have proper immune function and proper digestive function and all of the things that we know a good microbial balance does? But we're also looking at, do you have pathogens present? Do you have parasites present? Do you have yeast overgrowth? And then lastly, it's also looking at those digestive health markers. So do you have intestinal inflammation? Do you have intestinal immune activation? either that it's really highly active and currently fighting something, or it's totally wiped out because you've been dealing with something for a long time. And now your gut immune system is kind of wiped out. You've wiped out the army. So those are kind of the distinctions between the two. We're looking, even with a stool test, trying to bring you back into optimal. How can we rebuild that good microbial population? How can we eliminate the things that we don't really want to be there, or at least not in high levels? How can we boost up your enzyme production and your, you know, restabilize your immune system and reduce any inflammation that's present? So it's just really looking at data from a different perspective. Gotcha, gotcha. So instead of looking at averages, which are pretty um, sickly and not well, you're kind of maximizing an optimal, an optimal um, range instead. So. I'm just kind of curious, where's the uh, optimal standard come from? Is it just like, it, is it like an absence of something or is it like, is it being measured against someone? Is it like someone who comes in completely healthy, like you said, not symptomatic, no disease progression, and they give you say a stool sample and it looks fantastic. Why wouldn't it? Because this person is absolutely healthy. Is it like, is it like a comparison to that? Something like that? Yeah, generally they're looking at populations of people who are absent any disease or symptom or health condition. And they're using those values to really, you know, bring, it's not really an average, but it is kind of giving the picture of, you know, on the low end and the high end, this is where we see otherwise healthy people that we have no reason to believe have any disease or any imbalances present. Healthy people fall into these ranges. And that's what we're trying to bring you into. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
So, I mean, uh, gut health in general, because I'll, I'll tell you right now, I work in a hospital, and the amount of people who come, I work in a hospital and a laboratory, the people who come into the hospital who say the emergency room, and what I've noticed in the time that I've been there is the people who come in under the blanket term of abdominal pain is pretty sky high. It seems to just dominate everything else that people come in. I mean, I guess, uh, save for the fact maybe during the darkest days of COVID, when everyone was coming in with coughing and you know respiratory um, ailments and things like that. But abdominal pain, it, again, is like a umbrella term for all kinds of things that people come into. So it uh, really kind of struck me recently. It's like abdominal pain seems to be something that is really uh, heavily afflicted on the population for any number of reasons. I was just kind of, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think there's a lot of causes for abdominal pain. You know, you can have emergency situations like appendix, appendicitis mm -hmm. or pancreatitis or, you know, there's, there's some emergent things that can happen. And there's quite a few of those. And then we have the more routine things like heartburn mm -hmm. and acid reflux. And, you know, just we eat poor diets and that doesn't always make us feel the best. And, you know, you can end up with a lot of digestive distress just based on what you're eating. And sometimes even eating good foods that your body doesn't agree with. You know, you might have a sensitivity or an allergy or an intolerance to something. You know, someone that's lacking an enzyme to say break down lactose in milk is going to get a stomach ache if they eat a lot of dairy. So because they're just genetically, they're lacking that enzyme that they need. So there's a whole range of things that can cause abdominal pain. So I think that's the first reason is that, you know, there's multiple things that can send people um, into a doctor or an ER with abdominal pain. But I think there's, there's also a lot of just unknowns. I think people don't realize that the foods they're eating are causing these symptoms or that the amount of food that they're eating is causing these symptoms or that how fast they're eating is causing these symptoms. I think as a society, we're such a go, go, go community that we don't take the time to be in a rest and digest state when we're eating. We're eating on the go. We're eating in the car. We're eating during meetings. We're eating when we're on the phone. We're totally distracted, not paying attention. We're not chewing thoroughly. And then you add lower quality foods and way too much food in some instances, toxins, you know, artificial ingredients, all the preservatives, all the chemicals, all the things that we're taking in. And it's actually not all that surprising that we have all this abdominal pain. It's, it's almost surprising that everyone isn't dealing with it just because we're putting a lot of insults in our gut. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think are the, uh, where, where's the healthcare system really going wrong when they try to address these problems? I mean, other than the very emergent issues, like, like you said, pancreatitis or appendicitis and things like that, which, or diverticulitis and things like that, which, you know, might, also have a chronic origin as well. Um, so where, where does healthcare, modern healthcare really go wrong in, in a way to try to address that? You know, I think our healthcare system, at least here in America, is the best at acute care. If you get in a car accident or you break a bone or you have an acute situation, an emergency situation going on, we have the best medical care in the world. And that's exactly what you want. So, you know, you want to be saved in the moment. You want to be fixed in the moment. 
we really don't have great chronic care. The only answer our medical system really has is medicines and surgeries. They just really don't have the well-rounded approach to diet, lifestyle, exercise, sleep, stress, toxins. I mean, when's the last time your doctor asked you about how much glyphosate you're consuming? This is not even a topic of conversation with doctors mm-hmm. or what kind of water you're drinking. You know, is it tap or bottled or what's the source of it? How much soda you're drinking? The only reason they might ask you things like that would be, you know, if you already have diabetes, they might advise you to cut back on soda. But outside of apparent obvious diagnoses, they're not even asking these questions. They're not talking to patients about exercise or nutrition or how much sleep or how well rested they feel after sleeping or true stress management. Their stress is a major topic that's not just as simple as, you know, take a few things off your plate. Stress really is t- toxin exposure, infections. Mm-hmm. It's emotional stress and physical stress. And I mean, it's, it's a big topic. But these are just things that the medical community isn't talking about. And to be fair to them, we already ask them to do a lot. They have a tremendous amount of knowledge for acute care, for these major things. They know a lot about medications and surgeries and diagnoses and test results and these kinds of things. But they're looking at it through the lens of diagnosis and pharmaceutical treatment or surgical treatment. They really, we, we kind of expect a little bit too much of them to also be experts in nutrition and exercise and all of these other lifestyle factors. So I think part of the problem is we've put a little too much focus on our doctor being the end all be all, know everything about everything. That's not really fair. They already have a tremendous amount of responsibility I think we really need to expand the overall care model and we need nutritionists and acupuncturists and chiropractors and massage therapists and personal trainers. And we need more of a team approach that will hit all of those aspects of holistic care instead of just relying on your conventional doctor to be the fix it for everything. Yeah, that kind of leads me into another question I was going to ask you, because you mentioned that, you know, people need a holistic approach. So I guess guess you just gave us the definition of what, in your mind, would be a holistic approach. And I agree. It would be the doctor, it would be the trainer, it would be the massage therapist, the chiropractor. Um, And I think in the past that it has been kind of very um, divisive in between, like, you're over in your lane, this is my lane, and we just don't kind of cross over one another here. But I think there is a a growing sense that we need more participation between all these different fields rather than just these uh, territorial fights and disputes over about who's doing what. Um, and I understand there's, there's liability issues that come along with that too. You don't want, you know, you don't want your massage therapist to be giving prescription meds. That's just, that is way outside what they're supposed to do. And for good reason, because they just don't have the training for that sort of thing. So I get that. But um, is that kind of what would be your your grand idea for what a kind of a true healthcare system would be? Yeah, I think a true team would be great where all of these different practitioners really focus on their specialty 
And they rely on the other people in the team to pick up on the other things that they are not experts in. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, collectively, we can actually take better care of patients and people. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I agree completely. So when you have people who come to you, when they reach out to you, just to kind of like, you know, really shine a light on you and what it is you provide when they come to you um, and you've already talked about this. So what really, what is involved in the process of how you really address their, their issues? Yeah, we start off with a really in-depth conversation. We talk about, you know, history and what's going on and what do you want to have instead? What's that kind of perfect vision that would feel the best for you? Because that's really what matters is we want to get you to that ultimate outcome. So then we start with that. Once we kind of have a direction of like, here's the symptoms you're dealing with, or here's the things that you would like to un unravel or undo, then we come up with a plan for how do we get there? What testing is going to tell us, you know, give us the most targeted information to help you get there the fastest, the most efficient way possible. We talk about, you know, what dietary plan might be best because there is no one prescriptive, perfect diet for everyone based on your goals and you and your tastes. It doesn't do any good if I give you a diet that you hate, you're never gonna stick with it. So we have to take all these things into account, figure out the best plan for your nutrition, your exercise, your lifestyle, you know, stress management, sleep quality, all of these things that we've talked about, we really come up with the best possible plan to get you there. And then beyond, you know, once we've gathered all this data and we've kind of come up with the plan, then it's just iterating. Maybe we try something and you're like, you yeah, know, this isn't actually working for me or I don't like it as much as I thought I would. Okay, then we pivot a little bit and we just sort of refine it until it really does work for you. And along the way, you're learning how to make those iterations because throughout your life, there's going to be times where you're like, yeah, this isn't really working for me anymore. I think I want to make a change. Now you know how to. Now you know how to evaluate that and how to come up with something different to try or a different direction to go. You're learning how to make that iterative process yourself so that ultimately you are your best advocate because you're empowered and educated and enlightened as to what it really takes. Gotcha. Gotcha. How, so, I mean, I know it's kind of hard to really kind of pin it down. So, you know, how long does, what's the turnaround time for most of your clients that you see? I know it's very subjective, but just it is. And yeah, it obviously depends on where people are starting at and, and how far they really want or need to go. But generally people start feeling better pretty quickly. Once we have some answers as to what's going on, there's usually a couple of things that are pretty obvious just in looking at their story that it's like, you know, maybe do a little bit less of that or a little bit more of that or stop doing that altogether or really start doing this thing. Like some, sometimes there's some really low hanging fruit that we can just implement right away. And then you know, it just sort of, we figure out what the best plan is. So I generally work in about six month periods so that people really feel supported and they have the system down by the end of that six months. They know exactly what they're doing. They've asked all their questions. They have the accountability. And by then they've got the habits, you know, they're in the routine. Now that's not to say that everyone is like at their dream destination in six months, because it really depends. You know, someone that's got a hundred pounds to lose or more, or they have a serious condition that they need to improve, you know, that might take a long time, but they're at least on the path. They have the routines, they have the habits, they know what they're doing. And then they can decide if they still need continued support beyond that six months while they're continuing down the path. 
or if they want to continue on their own, you know, they have that path either way, but generally it takes about six months to really, you know, identify the imbalances, correct those imbalances and really settle in on the process. Gotcha. Gotcha. So Anola, um, one thing I wanted to get your input on and something that is pretty common is like macro counting and calorie counting when it comes to any kind of nutrition. Um, you know, we, there's a whole kind of industry set around, you know, counting macros and counting calories and, um, the macros, you know, we all know that how important they are, you know, the carbs, the, um, proteins and the fats and things like that. But we also, I think it all kind of overlooks the smaller elements like the, the micro, the macro, the micronutrients, like the things that, you know, like magnesium and zinc and, um, potassium, all these other things. Um, so but do you generally approve of macro counting and calorie counting, or do you think it does more harm than good? I think there's a time and a place for it, especially when someone is brand new to, you know, changing their diet. I think it can be really enlightening to know kind of where you're at. You know, it's really easy to misjudge how much you're eating or how much of a particular food you're eating or how much of a particular, you know, category of foods, like a particular macronutrient. It can be really enlightening to at least have a baseline of what you're currently doing. Beyond that, what I tend to see is people start making less healthy choices trying to hit those arbitrary metrics. So they have this calorie goal or they have this macronutrient goal and they end up eating like low calorie snack packs that fit into their calorie goal. But those are filled with chemical ingredients and not real food, but it fit into their goal. And so they feel compelled to eat those things or they feel like they're okay and justified to consume kind of diet foods. Or they feel like, oh, I haven't hit my macros yet, so I can have a cookie or I can have a soda or whatever because I've got leftover macros. And so it kind of gives you permission to make less healthy choices. And so I think it depends on your mindset. If you're approaching it not from that perspective, then it can be really helpful. But I think I more often see people use it as a way to cheat or as a way to fit these treats in that really aren't serving their goals. And it ends up causing plateaus or reversals or symptoms to come back because those are junk foods that they're adding back in. They're not adding adequate nutrition. Most people don't look at their macros and go, oh, look, I can have more carbs. I'll have an apple. That's, that's generally not the treat people turn to. They turn to cookies or sodas or, you know, sugary coffees, those kinds of things. So I think it depends if you're one of those people that's going to be looking for that little treat that you can fit into your macros, then I don't think it's a healthy thing at all. I think the tracking is actually probably not serving you and taking you down the wrong path. But if you're one of those people that you find it motivating and helpful, and you know, you're hitting like, say your protein goal, I do think that's an important one to really pay attention to because it can be easy to under eat protein. Most of us don't overeat protein because it's filling. Mm -hmm. You just, you, you hit a point where you're like, I can't eat another bite. I'm so full. Nobody goes back for, you know, a, a second or third steak because <laughs> you're full. And so I, I do think protein is a, an important one to at least pay attention to, maybe not necessarily track it really closely, but that's an easy one to under eat. And it's so important that I do think that's an important one. But I just, I have found more people go sideways and, you know, factor in these cheats when they're doing the macro counting. So I think it has benefits, but it can potentially have some drawbacks as well. 
Yeah, I would definitely agree. It's harder to hit that protein goal. Um, <laughs> I found myself kind of scrambling sometimes to really kind of pack it in there as best as I possibly can. But yeah, it really is. I mean, you kind of, you're at a loss for how you can really, I mean, get all the protein it really recommends you're supposed to get in there. I mean, you could fill it in with like you know, protein powders and stuff like that. But yeah, you're right. I mean, it's not reasonable to ask someone to eat steak three, four times a day. Um, maybe some people could do that. I don't know if I could, but, um, it's just, it is, it's very satiating and it's, it really does leave a, a big window open to like ingesting more carbs and usually not the healthiest carbs you can possibly find. So, um, so you would not recommend macro or calorie counting, or do you not do that at all with your clients? I don't really do macro or calorie counting. I do have them at the very beginning for the first couple of days or maybe a week, do a food log just so we can see where you're at. Because I do think there's value in pausing and evaluating where you're at, because then we can find that low hanging fruit. We can find what's missing. We can adjust. Maybe even it's just your schedule. Maybe you're actually eating all great foods, but you're either eating too often or not eating often enough or not eating a total amount large enough, or maybe you're a little overeating where you have a particular portion size that's over. So I think in the short term, it can be really enlightening to at least analyze where you are for a few days to a week. Once we've kind of done that, then I'm a bigger fan of just spot checking. So every once in a while, take a few days and track again and just make sure that you're still on track because it's easy to start, you know, like say almond butter, for instance, that's a really easy one to eat three or four or five servings because it's a really small serving size. And it's easy to just kind of add a little and add a little and add a little and add a little. And, you know, six months down the road, you're eating five servings and you don't even realize it. And so I think there's spot checking can be helpful once you're aware of it. And then that early on, just building the awareness at the beginning. But beyond that, I would rather you get really in tune with your body to know when you're really hungry. How hungry are you? When are you actually full or satiated? When can you stop eating and be fine? I would rather you get back in touch with those real physical sensations than hitting some arbitrary metric because I also think our needs vary from day to day. You're gonna have totally different caloric and nutrient needs on a super stressful day than you do on a day when you're like, yeah, I'm just chilling on the couch reading a book. Why would you hit some arbitrary metric when every day is different? So I think it's better if we can get back into truly listening to our bodies and then we can adjust on some days you're going to need more food. You're going to naturally be more hungry. That's okay. Nothing has gone wrong. This is totally normal. Maybe you're fighting an infection and your body needs extra nutrients. The opposite is true as well. Sometimes when you're sick, you're not hungry. This is normal but we don't want to necessarily feed that against what our body is telling us. We've just lost sight of what those signals really mean. So if we can get back to really feeling those sensations, then we can eat more on the days when we need to eat more and we can eat less on the days we don't need to eat as much. And we can eat the right amount at the right time and be okay with that. Be okay with it being different and not necessarily knowing why it's different. So you think that's what it really comes down to is just knowing what your body is telling you and to really just kind of stop when it says stop, as opposed to just uh, calories or what it is you're eating. It's really more about recognizing the signals. Yeah, that was a big one for me. I was 
one of the other schools of thought that I followed back in my days of all my symptoms was eating every two or three hours. Just because you're supposed to eat every two to three hours to keep your metabolism stoked. That did not serve me. And it completely dysregulated all of my hunger and satiety signals. I was only eating because it was time to eat because I was supposed to eat again. So I thought I was hungry every two to three hours, but all I had done is create the habit of hunger. That wasn't real hunger. I didn't actually need more food every two to three hours that actually contributed to insulin resistance because my levels of insulin never had time to come back down to baseline. I would eat again before it came back down and then I would eat again before it came back down. And I ended up with high insulin all the time contributed to insulin resistance that would have definitely taken me down the type two diabetes path. So I think following an arbitrary system like that can contribute to habits of hunger and the loss of all of those signals that we really should be paying attention to. Do you think maybe if you were eating like every two, three hours, you think it would have made a difference what, what kind of food you were eating? So it's like you said, like um, carbohydrates tend to be a very easy pick. Um, so if you're grabbing carbohydrates, like simple snacks, something like that, something you would give your kid or something like that, just to kind of give you the sensation that you put something in your system and this spikes your blood, uh, your blood sugars. But if you eat something like, say, maybe a chicken breast or something that doesn't spike your blood sugars, you think that would have made a difference? I do think it would have. And I certainly was eating the higher carbohydrate diet at the time with more fruits and vegetables and grains. So I do 100% agree with you. I think that would have made a big difference. I would say, though, if I were eating, say, chicken breast at all of those, I wouldn't have been able to. <laughs> no, no, I bet not. I would not have been able to eat meat six times a day. Like, that just wouldn't have happened. So that kind of takes me back to, well, then why would I eat six times a day? That's it, it, like they still go together. Mm -hmm. But I think when you're intentionally trying to eat every two to three hours, you do turn to carbohydrates because you burn through them quicker, which also makes you hungry quicker. And so right. I think you'd naturally would eat less and you wouldn't eat every two to three hours if you were eating proteins and fats instead of so much carbohydrate. Yeah, probably not. So what, okay. So a couple of things I wanted to get your input on. So we've been kind of making allusions to this over, over our conversation. So veganism, veganism is obviously hugely based on carbohydrates. Um, some are better than others. A lot of it is just kind of junk carbohydrates that are vegan, but they are processed foods. And, um, I'm really interested to hear what your thoughts are on that because, I was one for a number of years. Um, recently, pretty recently, I stopped because I, well, lots of reasons, but really because I'm starting to kind of um, learn more about what I should or should not be eating and what is, especially as I get older, what is actually optimal for me to eat in terms of preserving muscle and actually keep functioning. Um, so veganism and also intermittent fasting. So we're talking about, you know, actually shutting down your uh, metabolic system for a given uh, window of time and then kicking, kicking it up again at a certain hour or a certain point of the day. So what are your thoughts on those two subjects? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of reasons why people transition to vegan and I totally understand it. A lot of those were the same reasons I transitioned to vegetarian. I never went the full vegan route. I just, I love dairy and 
uh, mm-hmm. seafood a little too much and eggs. So I, I never could quite go that far. I, I, but I do understand why people do. And I think there's, you know, there's the moral issue, which it is what it is. There's really no compromise on that. If that's your reason for not consuming animal products, then th- there's really no way, you know, to, there's no little bit vegan. There's no, nothing in the middle that you can really do. So I totally understand that from a health perspective. I also transitioned away from the vegetarian lifestyle for the protein reasons, for mm-hmm. the, the nutrient needs that we really do have. And historically, people have been omnivorous. There are entire tribal cultures that are entirely carnivore. There are some that are much more plant-based, be, just based on the lack of animal food sources that they have in their tribal communities. But for the most part, humans have been omnivores with a relatively big carnivore focus. We really don't have any historical cultures that were entirely vegan. They just weren't. Every culture has had at least some level of animal consumption built in. Now, some were much more animal focused and some were much less animal focused, but there really aren't any vegan cultures in history. So I think that's one major clue that maybe that's not the best way we should be eating. Our our bodies are really designed modern human bodies are designed for some protein digestion and in order to build muscle and bone and hormones and enzymes and brain function and all the things we need adequate protein and plant protein is very different than animal protein. Sure. It's made up of the same amino acids, but in totally different proportions with different amino acids being high in animal proteins than are high in plant proteins. The ones that we really need the most of are mostly found in animal proteins. You have to eat a lot of plants to get adequate amounts of the essential amino acids from plants, which also means you're eating a lot more carbohydrate to get those adequate amino acids. And it it's just a lot more work. It's a lot more difficult. You have to really pay great attention to food combining and food preparation and a lot of things when you're vegan to make sure you're getting adequate amounts of those amino acids that we have to consume because we can't make them. The essential amino acids that we have to consume are much easier found in animal proteins. So whether you're someone who will eat anything, all the animals, or you'll only eat eggs, or you'll only eat, you know, particular things within the animal community, I really would urge you to look at true nutrition and understand that that's a much easier path to getting those amino acids. And without those building blocks, your muscle will suffer. Your bones will suffer. Your hormones will suffer. Your immune system will suffer. It won't suffer immediately. It's a chronic problem, and it but it will eventually catch up with you, and it will eventually cause imbalances. And even beyond that, there are certain vitamins that you just you can't get from plants, like vitamin B12. You really do have to have from an animal source. So I think there's there's a whole range of situations or aspects to this situation. There's the digestibility, the absorption of these nutrients, the bioavailability of these nutrients are better in animal proteins. They just are. The saturated fats are actually contrary to common opinion, 
saturated fats are actually some of the best fats for us. And primarily those are animal fats. You can get them from coconut, you can get them from some other plant-based sources, but for the most part, the healthiest of the healthy fats are actually in animal fats, not plant plant fats. Monounsaturated fats are great. Polyunsaturated are a little bit more sensitive, easier to oxidize, easier to damage. And those are mostly found in the plants. So I think there's a lot of, of reasons why we really should prioritize getting both plants and animals. Yeah, I think for myself, so I got on board, it was really more of a health reason. I thought I was doing myself a great service by avoiding things. And there's still certain meats I don't go near. I don't really eat red meat. It's much more chicken breast and salmon and um, uh, tuna and things like that, like you know, yellowfin tuna, things like that. Um, so but would you recommend like having a more kind of inclusive idea about what kind of animal protein you should, you should eat? So would you eat just about like everything, every from, from deer to, to chicken to anything? I am a big fan of giving as much variety as you can, because each one of those different kinds has different nutrients. You know, red meat's going to have much better or much higher quantity of things like iron. And there are quite a few people who really struggle with iron assimilation. There's other nutrients that are really found in red meats that aren't found as much in, you know, uh, fowl, poultry, those kinds of things. And there's, you know, different nutrients in wild game versus farmed animals. There, There is differences amongst all the different kinds of animal sources, just like there are in plants. You know, you get different nutrients from a cucumber than you do from a tomato. So I think just like with plants, the more variety we can get, the better. Um, and But I do think there's preferences. We have to take into account what you like and what you don't like. I, I don't ever really subscribe to people, you know, choking down foods that they really don't like. But I do think even if it's something you didn't like five years ago, try it again. Your palate can change. Mm -hmm. There are things I used to really dislike that I could eat every single day now, and I just love them. So don't necessarily believe that just because something was distasteful for you at one point that it will always be something you don't like. That might be true, but it might not be true. So be willing to try new things. Be willing to try new recipes or new ways to prepare something. And you might be surprised that you can get more variety in your diet from things that you didn't think you liked. So what about intermittent fasting? Where's your stance on that? I'm a big fan of intermittent fasting when it's done properly. I okay. think kind of like with macro counting and calorie counting where, you know, sometimes people use it as a reason to have a treat. I think intermittent fasting can in some people end up becoming the way that they can eat whatever they want. Well, I'll just fast. So I, or I, ha so it, it either becomes a punishment for eating a bad food. Well, I'll just fast the whole next day, or it becomes, well, I'm going to fast tomorrow so I can eat whatever I want today. And I don't think either one of those are the right way to approach intermittent fasting. I think when paired with a good quality diet, this is actually something that we just naturally do. You know, we talked a lot about if you were eating a big piece of steak or, you know, a good healthy protein based meal that has adequate healthy fats, you probably won't be hungry for quite a while. That's really filling. So, you'll naturally eat less often, which is really all intermittent fasting is. We're not always eating just because it's time to eat. We're eating because we need more fuel and we need to keep up those fuel stores. But I think we can 
safely and in a very healthy way, eat less often and eat our meals closer together. So maybe that's just during sunlight hours. You know, instead of eating at 9 p.m. when it's dark out all year round, just eating when the sun's up and not eating when the sun's down. That alone can make a big difference. It gives your digestive system a break, allows you to clean out everything that's been kind of just stuck in there. It also gives your body the ability to repair. When you're busy digesting, that's what your body's focused on doing. But when you actually allow your digestive system to clear out, then all of your cells throughout your entire body can turn into these recycling machines and they can go find partially broken down cells or you know, defunct cellular components and recycle those and make new cellular components. That's how you kind of revitalize and rejuvenate all of your cellular tissues. They're, they found tremendous longevity benefits to fasting. And it doesn't have to be three day or five day or, you know, these really long fasts, even fasting from like for 16 hours from dinner one day to your first meal the next day gives your body time to start doing some of this cleanup and repair. And that's what keeps you young. That's what keeps your cells renewed and your tissues renewed, cleans out toxins and eliminates all of this, you know, extra storage that we really don't need. Yeah. I think a lot of the, um, like you said earlier about the eating two, three times a day or eating every, every two, three hours. Um, I think we were kind of all taught that that's what you had to do. If you wanted to build muscle, that's what you had to do. It was eat, 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 eat six, seven meals a day. Um, and just keep piling on that protein. Do you, do you think there's, uh, do you think there's any, um, any real credence to that? Or is it, does it come down to, really just eating the protein and then seeing how your body responds to it. Is it the amount of protein or is it really just the quality of the protein that really matters the most? I think it's both. We do need adequate intake of protein, but we do want it to be quality protein. We want to be able to, you know, digest it and absorb those. And then we need adequate health to be able to assimilate those proteins into muscles. And then we also need the exercise component mm -hmm. because really that's what's driving muscle development is the physical nature of working out. It's, you know, causing a little bit of damage that then the body repairs and build, builds it back stronger. So we, we need the combination of enough protein, quality protein, and the exercise component specifically for muscle building. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, Andrea. So, um, as we kind of, uh, kind of power down now and start to close out this, uh, very, very uh, interesting interview and I heard a lot of things that were very intriguing to me. So one of the things that I like to ask people as we start to close out here is kind of a tradition. So, cause we kind of cover a whole lot in an hour or so. So if people could remember nothing that what you said before, if they could walk away with one thing, what would it be? Oh, so many things. Um, <laughs> I would, I would say, you know, just really take a good look at what you're doing. Take a good look at your, your food choices, your food schedule, you know, your exercise, your sleep, just look at your overall life and pick something, pick one thing to start with. Maybe that's a change in your diet. Maybe that's drinking more water. Maybe that's, you're going to lift weights instead of all cardio. Maybe that's, you're going to go to bed an hour earlier, whatever that is, just pick one thing and get started on it. Once that has become part of your routine, then you can add the second thing and the third thing and keep going. 
Now, I think that's a really helpful message, especially this time of year when uh, the new year is right around the corner and here comes everyone's New Year's resolutions and they just think they're going to conquer the world all at once and just kind of reminding them to say, hey, take things one step at a time here. Change one thing about your life rather than everything about your life. I think that really will be helpful and resonate with a lot of people. So, all right, Andrea Nicholson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This has been fun. Yeah, yeah. And um, I, again, uh, I tried, I'm trying to stream this on Facebook. I don't know. I'm not, I haven't gotten on Facebook. I don't know if this is actually working or not, but if it is working, um, thank you to everyone who is uh, chiming in and listening to us. Um, and um, also everyone who is listening, if you found um, value in this podcast or any of the podcasts, if you could go on Spotify or, or Apple Podcasts and give us a review and just share the episodes, tell us what you think. It would be enormously helpful. Um, I would be deeply appreciative of anyone who would do that. And uh, also don't forget, I have courses online uh, meant to address uh, strength and coordination, uh, neuromuscular development, um, everything having to do with Andrea here, I will put it in the show notes. I'll put her website on there. I'll put her social media on there so you can reach out to her if you like. And um, thanks so much, everybody, for who is listening or whoever will listen. Uh, again, my name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training. This is the Fitness Reborn podcast. And again, Andrea Nicholson, I thank you again. Thank you. All right. Take care, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments. Cancel anytime. Every little bit helps, and I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes, and you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's ren, R-E-N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. And you never know, you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace.